Gospel of John, which I called the fourth G. That was followed by Rev the Book Series and now Better Call Paul. Ever since really early on in the Gospel of John, I noticed a fruitful path of study that I think is going to bear fruit for a long time. And that's the agreement between Paul and John. John's Apocalypse, John's Gospel, the Epistles of John the Elder, and their tremendous affinity with Paul's Gospel. There's a terrific agreement between these two men to the point where I think we're recognizing in this particular study that Paul's epistles taken in toto, taken in their totality, really present an apocalypse, a revelation, a disclosure. And the disclosure is of the saving righteousness of God, the saving act of God in Christ, which is a salvation that has a universal scope a universal horizon. The more we appreciate the depth of the cross, which we're going to look into a little bit today in both John and Paul, the more we understand and appreciate the breadth of the impact of that cross. And ultimately, as I have seen, and I have convinced that breadth takes in all of creation. And I mean all of creation, visible and invisible, present and past, humanity in all the phases of human history because this is the magnitude of the depth of the cross and we can only appreciate the height the breadth and the width of the love of Christ if we understand the depth of what took place in the Christ event and by the Christ event I mean his incarnation or his becoming flesh John 1 14 his life of vicarious obedience, and by that I mean he's, his life was a response to the Father for us. His response to the Father is the reason for your salvation, not your response to God, but Jesus Christ's response to God is the base and the reason and the source of our salvation. And that's why faith rests in his faithfulness. Ultimately, if the gospel is properly proclaimed, faith does not rest in our faith. Faith rests in Christ's faithfulness. And his faithfulness has some ramifications we want to look at today. There's a couple things I want to look at, not just today, but in our, in our series as we're going forward. One, a question I was asked oftentimes on radio, and we've bantered it about, and it comes up from time to time, when Jesus died for the sins of the world, did he die also for unbelief? And usually, if you understand, if you don't understand justification by his faithfulness, you would say, oh no, he didn't die for unbelief. And would we could even put it even more in stronger terms. Did Christ even die for the sin of scorning his death? The sin of repudiating the love of God demonstrated in his death. I think there's an emphatic yes to both of these. I think he did die even for the sin of scorning him. And in fact, scorning him may be the act committed by Christians who don't believe that he died for those who scorn his death. So there's a strong conviction here. And this, this message, this series of messages tends to pull up short those who are believers who consider themselves especially entitled because of election, when in fact they are really under greater responsibility because of it. 
and are called to a responsibility to the grace of God. And another question I'm going to ask, which has been asked in the, uh, the last part of the Mirror Bible, which is worth getting the Mirror Bible for one reason only, just to read the excerpt at the end on the resurrection and the judgment of God, which I thought was particularly brilliant by Francois Dutois, who authored that book. And in there, the question arose, or the doctrine arose, as to whether John twelve thirty two refers to Jesus Christ drawing all judgment to himself rather than all people to himself. And that's a question I want to consider, John twelve thirty two. If I'm lifted up, I will draw. It doesn't say men. It doesn't say mankind. It doesn't say anything except all. I will draw all. Panta. I will draw all to myself. Does that refer to... Because of John twelve thirty one, now the prince of this world, or now this world is judged, the judgment of this world has come about. And we're going to find, I think, and I'll have to demonstrate this from the scriptures, that the judgment of the world is its acquittal from sin. The judgment of the world is its acquittal from sin. The resurrection of evildoers unto judgment is not a resurrection unto eternal damnation, which is a mistranslation. And a misinterpretation, but it is a resurrection to transformation by the grace of God, as we will see. So a couple of these questions will be addressed. And where does our faith fit in? Is our faith neglected by the scriptures? No, not at all. We are to believe and there is definite effects from believing and there is a definite responsibility to believe. So I decided to take our departure point from Galatians 3.22 because that's kind of like where we are verse by verse in our studies on Wednesdays and Thursdays. Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, first. But instead, the scripture, my translation from the original Greek, instead the scripture has imprisoned everything. That's a very strong carceral metaphor for incarceration of everything. That's everything. Tapanta. That's everything without exception. That's all created reality, including all humankind and all of its times, imprisoned under the power of sin. And the sin here that Paul speaks of is not just a series of immoral acts, but a suprahuman power that enslaves the entirety of the human race. All sin passed through Adam to all the human race so that all are considered to have sinned in Adam. And of course, all are considered to have been obedient in Christ. Christ's obedience is vicarious for us. And that's followed by his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. And then burial, resurrection, ascension, or elevation and enthronement. All of that is the Christ event. And every one of those elements of the Christ event from his incarnation to his enthronement are saving in their effect. They are salvific. They are saving. And we're finding that the impact of that salvation is endless. And we're finding that the horizon of that salvation is universal. Here's the second time we hear about this in Paul. Really, it's before Romans was written. Romans 11.32 speaks of imprisoning everything. God, in his wisdom, imprisoned all Jews and Gentiles in the state of disobedience. And there was a view there. There was a, a reason for imprisoning all 
in disobedience. It was so that he could have mercy on all. Mercy is extended to the disobedient. That's precisely the the whole thing of the gospel, the justification or the deliverance, the salvation of the ungodly is the whole point of the matter in Romans 4, 5 and 5, 6. So instead, the scripture has imprisoned everything under the power of sin. This reminds me of John 1, 29. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We could say the sin that imprisoned the whole of the world. He took it away. How did he take it away? Paul, what do you say? Well, I say he became sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God or the demonstration of God's deliverance in him. Remember, righteousness, the righteousness of God is his act of deliverance in Christ. The vision of the act of God in Christ and the act of Christ in God is what's going to save our generation save the next generation, and perhaps preserve this nation. It isn't politics. It isn't politicians. It isn't even military might that preserves a nation. It's a vision without which people perish. People continue in chaos. They continue in an uncontrolled flesh. They continue in the slavery to sin, which is true slavery. And so this message is very significant for our time. And I hope we can pass it like a torch to the next generation. And I hope that they will take it. And I hope that they will run. And that they will not be weary. So the scripture has imprisoned everything under the power of sin. Precisely, Paul says, so that the promise. Remember the promise against, against the law. The promise is an unconditional promise that in Christ, all the nations of the world, all the nations will be blessed. The blessing is participation with his own life. And that's by the gift of the spirit. Instead, the scripture has imprisoned everything under the power of sin, precisely so that the promise would be given or precisely rather that the promise by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Please notice that precisely so that the promise by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, that's his Faithful obedience throughout his life in the days of his flesh, as Hebrews 5, 7 calls it, by his obedience, as Hebrews 5, 8 calls it, which made him the author of eternal salvation to those who obey him. Check that word out in Romans in Hebrews 5, 9 and see how that fits with his faithfulness. And here's the phrase that we've been wrestling with. Well, I've been wrestling with it a little bit, but I have it nailed down pretty much. But I've been looking, I've been making it look like a wrestling match in front of you. But here it is. To those, or would be given to those who believe. So let's read the whole verse. A lot of features in this. But instead, the scripture has imprisoned everything. That's everything without exception, under the power of sin. Precisely so that the promise, by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, would be given to those who believe. That phrase, to those who believe, is interesting. And with the important phrase, to those who believe, we compare Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. This refers back to Isaiah chapter 28. All who believe in him will not be ashamed. I have laid in Zion a tested stone, 
All who believe in him will not be confounded or ashamed. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power, or we could say Christ himself is the power of salvation. And then it says, to all who believe, to all who believe. The tempting part of this is to say that to those believing or to all who believe, or in Romans 5, 17, it says to those who are receiving the free gift of righteousness and the abundance of grace, it is tempting to say that the promise is given through the faithfulness of Christ only to those who believe, and that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that the presence of that salvation or that salvation is is exactly experientially present to those who believe. The scripture teaches in Philippians 2.9, referencing back to Isaiah 45.23, based on an oath sworn by God, that every tongue of every creature will, will pronounce a faithful allegiance and profess a faith-filled confession that Yahweh is Yeshua, Jesus, to the glory of God the Father. That means to the point where God is glorified in all. He becomes all in all. That's if you blend Philippians 2, 9 to 11 with 1 Corinthians 15, 28. So with the important phrase, to those who believe, tois pistuosin, it says we can compare to all who believe in Romans 1.16. And as I quoted, and I don't want to do this too often on Sunday morning, but why not today? Ernst Kosselmann, the German scholar, who I'm reading his Romans commentary, which is quite brilliant in many respects, he says about this, he said, this all who believe phrase expresses both the presence of salvation And also its universal scope. Where faith is, there is the place of salvation. And this implies not only assurance of future deliverance from judgment, but beyond that also present peace and joy as a state of openness before God and man. And so to all who believe, Romans 1.16, to all who are receiving the gift, Romans 5.17, To all who believe, Galatians 3.22, does not exclude any others. It does not restrict the promise to those only who believe because the promise is an unconditional one that in Christ all the nations will be blessed. And as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. He goes on to say one other thing. I've quoted this three times now, but I want to emphasize it to the point where it's understood. Speaking in Romans 5.17, he talks about the present participle of lambano, which means simply to receive. It talks about to those who are receiving or who are characterized as receiving the free gift of righteousness or the free gift of God's deliverance and the abundance of grace. That's an abundance of grace for Christian living. And he says about this, that these are believers. And then he said, this, those who are receiving, takes the place of the earlier reference to many in Romans 5.15. 
And we're going to look at this in a moment. In fact, go to Romans. We'll look at this for, in a moment. So he says, those who believe takes the place for the moment for that little characterizer, the many, which Paul equates with all human beings. And so he says the phrase, those who are receiving the free gift, as well as the phrase, those who are believing, he says this implies no restriction. That is no restriction of the salvific impact because he goes on to say, all are mentioned again in verse 18. And the many reappear in verse 19, the point is that even under grace and as a believer, a person remains dependent on the one who, with the expression dia tu enos Jesu Christo, or the, one, the grace of the one man Jesus Christ, is with solemn emphasis opposed again to Adam as a bearer of destiny. And then he goes in to explain, as Paul does, there are two men in the human race that are bearers or carriers of the destiny of all of humankind. The first is Adam. I like to call him Adam 1. The second is Christ. I like to call him Adam 2, the final Adam. And both are bearers of the destiny of all of humanity. Through the one man's sin, the one man's disobedience, sin as a power that's oppressive and enslaving passed to all the human race. So by the obedience of one, all are justified or delivered from that same oppressive power of sin, of judgment, of death, of condemnation. And so the phrase, which makes people trip up a little bit, to those who believe should not be construed as to only those who believe, but that it, the place of salvation becomes present. Another way of saying it is when we go to James James said, receive the engrafted word. Be receiving the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The privilege we have as those who are believing is that we are receiving even today a message, a word that gets engrafted and implanted in our souls and it saves our soul, delivers and preserves our very life in time. And our psychological makeup, our head is lifted, as the song said this morning. He's the lifter of our head through that grace. So in short, the references, and I'm going to have to really hammer this out more and more, and I'm responsible too, so I will. But in short, the references to those who believe, or all who believe, and those who are receiving the free gift, though indicating the presence of salvation in believers, or to those who are presently believing, does not restrict that salvation to the eventual inclusion of all. And so Peter wasn't kidding in Acts 3.21 when he says that God spoke through the mouth of the prophets in every case about the apocatastasis panton, the restoration of everything. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin that oppresses and enslaves the world. If he takes away the sin by becoming the sin, does he draw the judgment, all judgment to himself? Does John 12, 32 say that, as Francois de Troyes said in his excellent commentary? 
I got some interesting answers for you on that one. So then, let's look just briefly to the text in Romans 5.15 to illustrate the matter so far. Romans 5.15, again, this is my translation. I know it's strange on Sunday to actually be looking at the Bible in church, but it's usually the place where the preacher's supposed to do a homily, isn't it? Where he just encourages you to be moral and be all you can be in Adam. Romans 5.15. But the transgression committed, that's Adam's transgression, was, which was committed, is not like the gift bestowed. In other words, you can't compare them because the gift bestowed goes farther in its impact even than the sin committed. So the transgression committed is not like the gift bestowed, for since by the transgression of the one man, Adam, the many died, the many we will see again and again as being all without exception. Much more. That's all out of proportion. So this, this isn't a direct comparison. Much more by the grace of God and the free or unconditional gift arising from the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Here's the many again. So we have two references to the many, which is equivalent to the all in 518. It's equivalent to all in 1 Timothy 2.6. Remember, we dealt with that. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He's the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah 40, chapter 40 through 55. And to give his life as a ransom for many. But then what do we say, Paul? How do you interpret that, Paul? Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 6, Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And he gave his life as a ransom for all the many of Mark 10:45 and Matthew 20:28 20, equals all according to 1 Timothy 2:6 and as we'll see in Romans 5:18. So the to those who believe doesn't mean to only those who believe in the present time because it it refers also to an eventual outcome where the all are included. Don't ever forget that Jesus Christ bears the destiny of all of humankind, not some of humankind. He bears the destiny in himself, and he was crucified, so was I, with Christ. And yet he lives, so do I, but Christ lives in me now. He's raised from the dead, and so were we, in Colossians 3.1. He has been ascended and seated, elevated and seated, enthroned in the heavens, and so are we, in Ephesians 2.6. Happy are you who believe, because you know these things. Paul says in the last verse of the main body of the Roman epistle, which is 1513, he gives the expression of faith. He says, may God, the God of hope, fill you up with hope and joy and peace in your believing. Your believing results in being filled up with hope. Not justified, but filled up with hope. Filled up with hope and joy and peace by believing, in the believing. If Paul wanted to summarize his message and if it was justification for eternal life by faith, you'd think he would have said it there, but he didn't say it. He said believing resulting in being filled up with hope, not resulting in being justified. But that's another matter. Let's continue. Verse 16, and the free gift, that's the unconditional gift of deliverance is not like the one man's sin. That means it's all out of proportion to it. 
God lavishes extravagantly his grace much more than the condemnation that came from Adam is the grace that comes from God, even to the scorners and those who are hostile toward the love that sent the Son. Watch that one. Going a little deeper today. The free gift is not like the one man's sin because from the one man's sin, judgment came unto condemnation. But the gift bestowed, that is through Jesus Christ's faithfulness, came after many transgressions and brought acquittal. After many transgressions, God wanted to accentuate the value and the depth of his grace by allowing the law to come so that transgressions would increase, which only magnifies God's grace. Well, then do we go out and commit sin that grace may come? Of course not. That's not the, you're not thinking right when you think that, Paul goes on to say in Romans 6. But let's finish. So he says, for since by the one transgression, death ruled through the one, that's one man Adam, much more, he says, will those who receive the surplus of grace and the free gift of deliverance reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. The recipients of this gift, which are those who are believing, reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Those who aren't believing aren't reigning in life by one Christ Jesus. Those of you who believe are. But he, this does not exclude others from the impact of the cross because in verse 18 he returns to all again. Therefore, accordingly, just as it was through one man's transgression... That condemnation came to all human beings. That's all human beings without exception. The fundamentalist preacher is very willing to agree with that. He's not willing to agree with the next thing, though. He'll be agreeing that Adam bears the destiny of mankind, but he doesn't want to agree that Christ bears the destiny of all mankind. So how do you know that? Because I was that preacher. That's how I know that. I was that preacher. I was him. I'm changed. I'm a different man today. And so, again, verse 18, therefore, accordingly, just as through one man's disobedience or transgression, condemnation came to all human beings. He bore the destiny of all human beings in death and condemnation. So through the one man's righteous, that means saving act. I can prove that 10 ways from Sunday. And have begun to. Through the one man's saving act came the deliverance which is life. The justification of life means the deliverance which is life to all for all human beings. So for those who believe does not disqualify all. It does not restrict. It does not qualify it so that only those who believe in the present are justified. Romans 5.18 gives the lie to that idea. So verse 19 even bears even further witness to this. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, that's Adam's disobedience, the many, and again we have meant the many and all interchangeable in this. You can see it clearly, especially in the Greek text. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were constituted as sinners. That's everybody. So also by the obedience of the one, that's Christ's obedient life all the way to the extent of death by crucifixion, 
Philippians 2.8. The many are constituted as righteous or rightly delivered. Now, here's a question that came to one of our students here in the church, and I always take them seriously when I get them. What about, they said, John 3.36. Now, they want to use John to rob Paul. And so they say, what about John 3.36? As many as believed in the Son have life, but as many as do not, and it doesn't say believe, it says obey the Son, will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on them. And immediately to them, the wrath of God means eternal damnation. And lexicons even try to support this because even lexicons and the majority of English translations of the Bible are already prejudiced against the universal impact of the cross by systems of religion and traditions of men that began to be developed as early as Augustine. And also with some of the Gnostic Gospels, which are no Gospels at all. Mary Magdalene's Gospel, Judas's Gospel, Thomas's Gospel. Those are not Gospels. I have much more to say on that, and I will in the future, if the Lord gives me time. And another little thing he gives me day by day called breath. Now, so to, but I say to attempt to undo the unrestricted nature of eventual salvation which is called the restoration of all things, by using John's gospel, I'm almost saying, don't do that now. I spent 300 hours teaching it and 10 times that many hours studying John, and I'm going to return to it again with more fullness. So don't use John to undo Paul's assurance and Paul's demonstration of a universal gospel. First of all, to use John 3.36 And the abiding under the wrath of God is to undo this is to a fail to recognize that John himself is a universal salvation preacher that in John 317 in describing the mission of the son he said God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world the idea is the world is already condemned but so that through him the world would be saved. In the first introduction of Jesus, John the baptizer cries out, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 1.14, the Word, who is God, who is very God, who is the very essence of divinity, became flesh. Not human, but flesh. He did become human, but the word flesh is used, which means he identified and came into the realm of all of the cursed creation. All of the enslaved creation, born of a woman, born under the power of the law that he might redeem us from the curse of the law because he who became sin for us also became a curse for us, for all. That the blessing of Abraham might come to us without impediment, without blockade, by the law and by any other human traditions. We're coming up to that again in Galatians 2. But also, in John 1.16, John speaking universally, from his fullness, this incarnate Christ, this incarnate word, from his fullness we have all received, we have all been the beneficiaries 
Grace after grace, he says. He's, he, you can't even translate grace after grace because he says, grace that's so gracious, you can't even comprehend how gracious it is, how universal its scope. Because the law came by Moses, but the covenant fidelity to the law came through Jesus Christ. He unilaterally fulfilled any covenant demands on mankind for all mankind. That's universal. In John 17, 2, Jesus said, The Father has given to me all flesh under my authority now, under my authority in order that I might give eternal life to everybody I want to give eternal life to. And that's everybody. Because God is not willing that any should perish. And God is willing, and this is the goodwill of our God and Savior, that all be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth And I add to that the truth that, of course, is embodied in Jesus. So to use John 3.36 is to fail to recognize that John himself is universal in his salvific horizon. And B, it fails to recognize that believing is the means of having the life now of the coming age. Believing is the means of having the life of the coming age in some measure, in some growing substantial measure in this time right now in this life. And some of us can say, yes, I experienced the life of the coming age in some measure, in some demonstrated measure, in some visible measure. Yes, I do. And that is by believing. So those who use that fail to recognize that those who fail to obey the Son is what's being used here, which is a, a synonym for believe in him. So to attempt to use that verse, as someone apparently recently has to members of our flock, and I'm very defensive of you. I'm getting very angry at some of the attackers, by the way, and I'm, gonna, I'm taking them on. And uh, most of them are just people who like to sit around and discuss but don't preach and teach and have the responsibility of it. But, so, it's to fail to recognize that John is a universalist, very emphatically, as Paul is. And it also fails to recognize that when John mentions believing 99 times, it's always with a reference to the experience of the life of the coming age in the present age, not to justification. And again, in Romans 15, 13, Paul says, So I say to Paul, what do you say about that, Paul? He says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul had a chance right there, the last verse of the main body. Then he goes into some final exhortations and introductions. Last verse in the body of Romans epistle. If any time was the time to say, by believing, you're justified. By your faith, you're justified. He should have said it here. But he said, by believing, you're filled up with hope by the power of the Spirit. So what distinguishes you from the unbeliever? Hope. An anticipation of the restoration. I told both of my neighbors, one on one side, one on the other, this truth this this week. Emphatically, spent a lot of time with them into the night. Two neighbors, one night, back to back. One on the left first, one on the right second. And one said, my jaw is dropping right now. And the other one said, thank you for telling me that. And he said, I 
I rejected a lot of religion because of that whole eternal damnation thing. And it just it's because the occasion came up. I'm, I'm there with it. I'm not going to go around beating down doors and giving people pamphlets. Although I do that too, but if the opportunity comes, I don't know about you, I'll take it. So please note that Paul speaks of believing so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit. Not of believing so that you may be justified. You're justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And the promise, which is the gospel, is an unconditional pledge of God that all the nations will be blessed in union with the seed, and the seed is Christ. I hope I made that clear last week. If I don't, I'll repeat it again, Ralph. I'll do it a fifth time if you want me to. Everybody was thanking you the other night, by the way. Thanks for being the only person courageous enough to raise your hand and say, do it the third time, was Ralph. Now, another phase of the message, I'd want to close with this, but the wrath remaining on those who do not obey the Son in John 3.36 is not a threat of eternal damnation, but of remaining in the Adamic ontology. And we do the same things. Those of us who are in Christ and know it, those of us who are believing, we can also reject the word. We can neglect this so great salvation. We can come back right under the old Adamic ontology and be the old SOB that we were before, or DOB. B meaning Belial, of course. One of the reasons I don't use a lot of vulgarity is because it's overused. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, people use this, they can't even say a sentence without at least four references to the F word. And it's because of a frustrated soul. So you're demonstrating that you're a frustrated person by using those, that language all the time. So I, I decide maybe I'll be a little different. Some of you want me to say really bad words. Saying, well, the preacher said this today. Our preacher, he's cool. No, that's not cool. In fact, cool isn't cool. But we'll go there sometime. Now, if you want to talk about Paul, he did talk about them getting cut off. Those ones, the circumcisers, he said, I wish they'd go a little further. And he was pretty vulgar, but he had to be at certain points. God shows himself vulgar to the vulgar. Now, what they also fail to recognize is that the warning of the wrath abiding on those who disobey the Son or don't receive the Son is a warning of a conflagration or a catastrophe coming in history in A.D. 70. And that's what Jesus said in John 8, 21, to those who were opposing him. First he said, hey, I'm here to save you guys, and I'm going to save you. John 5, 34, he said it bluntly. I came to save you, and I'm going to. And he says it again in, in John 12, as we're going to see, but I'm moving up to it. John 8, he said, if you don't believe that I am he, you're going to die on account of your sin. He didn't say you're going to hell forever. He said you're going to die on account of your sin, and he explained it this way. You're going to seek me. 
meaning I'm Yahweh, though you don't know it. You're going to seek me and die on account of your sin. What was he referring to? In AD 66, you're going to come flocking to Jerusalem for the feast of unleavened bread because you refuse me as the bread of life. You're going to come for the Passover because you refused me as the Passover lamb. You didn't believe in me. So the result of that is you're going to seek me, Yahweh, but you will fail to realize that you could have already found him in me. I am Yeshua, Yahweh. And so you will die. That means die under historical judgment in Jerusalem because at that time, as he said in other passages, the Romans are going to encircle Jerusalem. They're going to come in with their abomination of desolation, which is the sign of destruction, the worship of Caesar with the signs of the golden eagles. And they're going to besiege you and burn you down. You're going to die on account of your sin. He wasn't saying you're going to go to hell on account of your disbelief and disobedience. And that's not what John 3.36 means. So there's a fourth reason. Don't use that. On members of this flock, or you've got a shepherd that has a rod and a staff and uses them to transform you by love, of course. This will transform you. Bang! Now, that's what resurrection is going to be. It's going to be like God saying, okay, evildoer. Bang! Be transformed by my grace. That's what resurrection is for the evildoer. I'll show you in a minute, and we'll close. So the wrath that coming on those that don't obey the Son is not a threat of eternal damnation, but remaining under the Adamic ontology which means, as we used to think about it, under the sin nature's control. So in his extended commentary, which he entitled Thoughts on Judgment and the Resurrection, on pages 480 to 85, Francois de Troyes, the author of the Mirror Bible, observed correctly that the word krisis, K-R-I-S-I-S, K-R-I-S-I-S in the Greek, which is almost always translated as judgment. The word crisis does not mean, he says, damnation or condemnation. I agree with that wholeheartedly. In fact, I, I'm sure of that because of the way it's used elsewhere in the scripture. He says judging involves setting affairs right between different parties, deciding an issue, coming to a conclusion. And then he said this, and I agree wholeheartedly, I'll say right from the start. The judgment of Jesus is the acquittal of the human race. The judgment of Jesus is the acquittal of the human race. And then he quotes Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our iniquities. And so now let's look at John 12 and we'll close. John 12. This is the question. And this is how he interprets it, and others do too. And there's a, there's a movement, a consensus toward interpreting this way by scholars, but that plus a dollar. Beyond this, he translates John twelve thirty one to 33 this way. Now you're at 1231. I'm going to read all three verses back to back in his translation. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. 
And I, Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all, and he puts in brackets, judgment to myself. And then he goes on to say, John does his little commentary, John the gospel writer. He said, he said this to show by what death he was to die. In other words, he was explaining that his death would be the drawing of judgment, all judgment away. Listen carefully to this, my interpretation, including the judgment of the prince of this world away from the prince of this world to himself, Jesus. And so Dutois, that's D-U-T-O-I-T, adds in brackets, quote, judgment is the subject of the sentence here. Now, I'm not going to take that at face value, so I'm going, to inter- inter- I'm going to exchange with Francois. And I will say, Brother Dutois, I entirely agree that crisis means acquittal of the human race. So when Paul said to the philosophers on Mars Hill, he said, there's going to come a day when God will judge the human race by one Jesus. He was saying God is going to acquit the human race through one man, Jesus, whom he raised from the dead, meaning when he raised him from the dead, he was the bearer of the destiny of all humankind who in resurrection will be acquitted. It it, it has to be. I'm, I'm thinking it has to be. So I agree with him. And in John 5, 29, it indicates specifically the acquittal of evildoers. Those who do good will be raised to eternal life. Those who do evil will be raised to Croesus, an acquittal. That's a universal gospel preacher. His name is Jesus. I agree with him. Those who do the good are not do-gooders, but those who have embraced the gift of righteousness and the surplus of grace. Those who do evil are those who scorned the cross, even through the point of death, and spurned the love of God that gave the Son to the point of death. They will be raised to Croesus, to an acquittal, which Moltmann called a transformation by grace. Now, if you had the power to change a criminal into another person altogether that was incapable of criminality, would you do that or would you send that criminal into an eternal punishment of damnation? Well, if you're a human being, you might do the latter because you think vengeance is the key for all human happiness. And it isn't. And there are people that have found revenge in their lives, have never been satisfied by it. In fact, it's the opposite. It comes back with a worse vengeance. God can change, transform, and rehabilitate eternally an evildoer. So he chooses to do that instead of sending the evildoer into eternal damnation. And if you want, you can go ahead and talk about the evil men in history whose acts of evil impress you more than the love of God in the death of Christ. Go ahead. Use the excuse that everybody uses and point to some evil person, and I'll point to you some person who would, it was more evil, the chief of all sinners, and if he had given, been given up that head of steam that he had, 
he would have been far worse than any dictators in history. And his name was Saul of Tarsus. And he was immune to the gospel and hostile to the gospel. And the only way he could have changed was by seeing Jesus Christ in his glory. And he did. And Paul is as much important to us as who he is as to what he wrote. So in John 12, let me, I'm going to just look at this. This is how I deal with this. I read something and I go, okay, I can, I can deal with that. But it says, can we say that John is speaking, that John 12, 32 speaks of Jesus drawing all judgment to himself. I've already interpreted it as drawing all creation to himself. But can we say that, he's, that Jesus also drew all judgment to himself. I think we can, and here's why. We can do it without destroying the idea of his drawing all of humanity and all of creation into himself. Because precisely the second drawing all to himself can't happen without the first drawing all the judgment against all to himself. He did draw all condemning judgment away from the angelic principalities and powers, from human beings, from all the creation that suffered as a result of human transgression in Adam. He drew all that judgment to himself. And that is the death that he died. But it's also true that because of that, he draws all mankind into himself. Because what do you say to that, Paul? Well, it was the mystery of God's intention to sum up everything in Christ Jesus which he will do. And what do you say, Isaiah? I agree wholeheartedly. I will do all my will, says God. Don't argue with that. My will is to sum up everything in Christ Jesus. So we can say, Jesus draws all judgment to himself so that he can draw, and the word elko or elkuo means draw, haul, or drag. And the reason why I say that it also means that he draws all to himself is because that word elkuo is also used in John 6.44. No one comes to me unless the father pulls him, drags him, hauls him to me. Nobody comes to me. They don't wake up in the morning and decide, I'm going to wear these shoes today. I'm going to wear this hat today. I'm going to this place today, and I'm going to believe in Jesus today. Nobody comes to me unless my father draws him. So there we're not talking about drawing judgment to oneself. We're talking about drawing a person to God. Furthermore, in John 21, 6, in that final beach story, when Jesus said, cast your net on the other side, they did, and they couldn't even haul the catch, the word el cuo, same used as in John 12, 32. They couldn't haul it to the boat. It was so full. It's a picture of the harvest, not only of men. Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men, of mankind, but of all creation because they were real fish. And so what is being drawn here is creatures. So we can say both that Jesus drew all judgment to himself, including the judgment on the prince of this world. When he said, now the world is judged, now comes the judgment of the world, he was talking about his drawing away the judgment of the world to himself on the cross. That's the judge. You know what that is? It's the final judgment. 
You want to talk about the final judgment? You got to look back to see it, not forward. So, you see, when God positions you in a viewpoint to see a horizon, you see things differently than you did before. And that makes you a different person. So, the prince of this world is judged in the very act of being lifted, but in the very act of Jesus being lifted up. The prince of this world is judged in the sense he's deposed from his throne. He has no more enslaving authority over the human race any longer. Beyond this, God the Father has given authority over all flesh to Jesus to give eternal life to as many as he wants to give eternal life to. Not to as many as believe, but to as many as he wants to give eternal life to. And who do you think Jesus wants to give eternal life to? All do-gooders. So, you remember John Donne? Of course you do. He was in the 1600s. That's how old I am. But John Donne, D-O-N-N-E. He wrote a poem called The Cross of Christ, and he said this. It bore all other sins, but is it fit that it should bear the sins of scorning it? That's the question I asked in the beginning. Did Jesus die for Scorning. He said again, it bore all other sins. That's the cross of Christ. It bore all other sins, but is it fit that it should bear the sin of scorning it? The author of the book where I read this, Thomas Torrance, answers without hesitation, it is indeed. For that is precisely what the cross was about. There the Lamb of God was bearing and bearing away the sin of the world, including the very sin of scorning it. And those who scorn it just might be Christians today who scorn the fact that Christ died even for the scorners. Oh, no, not them. What do you say, Paul? Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinful, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath by him. And verse 10 of Romans 5 is the clincher. For if while we were enemies... The people who hostily scorned the very love of God that gave his son. Those who pierced him in Revelation 1.7. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more certainly will we be saved by his life? So I would say in Revelation 1.7, to bring in Rev the book, Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. To see him is to experience his salvation, according to Isaiah 40 and verse 5. All flesh will see him and experience the salvation of the Lord. To see this vision is to experience this salvation. That's how important this gospel is. But then it says, even to those who pierced him, which I would put this interpretive spin on this, especially to those who pierced him 
especially because the more especially you see the cross being for the sins of the most egregious evildoers, the more you see the awesome, extravagant, unconditional, blessed benevolence of the God of all grace. That's all I'll say today. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that you'll bless the rest of this week and our lives in the rest of this week. May we step out of here, changed people, growing in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name.